Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. UCF is still seeking its first Big 12 victory. It seemed to have one locked up against Baylor before a fourth quarter collapse that saw the Bears score 29 unanswered points to beat the Knights. This weekend, UCF is a heavy underdog as it heads to Norman to take on the Oklahoma Sooners. The game certainly has lost some of its luster as the Knights are on a three-game losing streak, but there's still some intrigue. For instance, the Sooners quarterback, Dylan Gabriel, is a former UCF Knight who transferred to Oklahoma two years ago. This will also be the only game where these two teams meet as members of the Big 12. Oklahoma darts for the SEC next year. Today, I welcome in a USA Today Network beat writer for each team. Ryan Aber joins me from the Oklahoman, while Chris Boyle is here from the Daytona Beach News Journal. We'll bring them in in just a moment. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state, and we have 260 newspapers in the country, including three in Oklahoma. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper, and of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. Let's not waste any time. Ryan, welcome to your inaugural appearance on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and Chris, as always, welcome back. It's good to hear your voice again. Pleasure to be here. How are you, Tim? Oh, doing awesome today. Love talking some college football. So let's get right down to it. And we're going to start with Ryan today, Ryan. Dylan Gabriel played his first three seasons for UCF before transferring to Oklahoma. And, you know, he had a bit of an injury situation when he was there in Orlando. The team was 6-6 six and six last year, but they're 5-0 and oh right now in their bye week. And some people have say that he's even entered the Heisman conversation after his performance against Texas a couple of weeks ago. So, What's changed for Gabriel that has him playing at such a high level this year? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One, he's being uh, making so much better decisions. Uh, you know, last year there were several opportunities where he could have thrown the ball away and uh, sort of the live to fight another day mentality. Instead, he held on to it too long, took sacks. He's making downfield throws. Uh, a whole lot better this year as well as uh, avoiding those uh, those costly sacks um, and, and just uh, performing better overall. And I think also he's got a better team around him this year than he did last year. Their offensive line is better. Their uh, wide receiver group is better. And that's really helped uh, helped him shine. And he's playing as well as anybody in the country right now, completing more than 72 percent of his passes. You know, good chance that he winds up top 10 all time in career passing yardage by the time this thing's said and done and, and just really taking a significant step forward this year. 
do you agree with that assessment that now he's somebody that should be talked about in the Heisman? Because, I mean, we saw Caleb Williams struggle. USC got its first loss. You've got guys like Jordan Travis, Michael Penix. Do you think he's up there with them? Yeah, I think certainly he's in that conversation. Now we'll see how the rest of the season plays out. He's got to put up some pretty gaudy numbers uh, over the rest of the season to remain in that spot, especially because of the way their schedule is. They don't uh, play another team that's ranked uh, the rest of the way until they would uh, presumably face Texas again in the Big 12 title game if that's the way it works out. Uh, so he's he's got to... Uh, put up probably bigger numbers than some of those other guys, but he's certainly right there in the mix at this point. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people rooting for that Red River Part 2 because that was such a great game here a couple of weeks ago with Oklahoma pulling that out. Well, Chris, on the other side, you've got UCF who would love to play the spoiler, but right now it's just hard to to see that they're, they're big 18-point underdogs and we'll talk about that in a minute but you know Gabriel is he kind of a focal point for this game or what has been the conversation surrounding this game with UCF's locker room uh well I think part of it is just you know trying to uh, come out of a bye week and adjust to life in in the big 12 and hope this is more or less a an opportunity to reset and and uh, and you know catch their breath and get a little healthier as they get ready for obviously a, a tough game the toughest one on their schedule you know, I, I think there's no doubt that whether it's publicly or, or privately, you know, Dylan Gabriel's going to be on, on their mind uh, as it pertains to this game, wanting to show him that the grass wasn't necessarily greener. You know, back at Big 12 Media Day said, uh, you know, one of his former linemen, Lakahi Paole, said, I'm still rooting for him except for when, we, for when we play him. And I think that's kind of the feeling. Like, there was, you know, I don't think it was necessarily the most um, – I think it was something that people understood, right? Like it's it's the transfer portal age. It's it's more typical to see guys do what's best for them and you know change their situation and you know find the best fit. And obviously with Jeff Levy there, who was his offensive coordinator at UCF, Oklahoma was on paper one of the you know the, one of the more natural fits. And that was the case when Levy was at Ole Miss before he moved as well. So uh, I think certainly there's going to be fuel to, to this for on UCF's end. Now, whether they can you know utilize that is anybody's guess. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, uh, sometimes even when you have the biggest things to play for, when, when you don't have the quite the talent or size, but hey, you never know. A UCF's pulled off some great upsets in its history. Now, Ryan, you know, aside from the Texas game, really Oklahoma has handled its other opponents with relative ease. So, you know, as I mentioned, they're an 18 point favorite here. So maybe one of the few things is, is for people who are betting, do they think, hmm, can can Oklahoma win by more than 18? If you're a betting man, does this one end with a larger margin than that? Or do you think UCF stays in it closer? Yeah, I think there's there's some things that you can look at and, and think that maybe UCF could keep it closer, their ability to run the football. Uh, certainly has been one of those, you know, leading the Big 12 in in rushing offense, uh, you know, put, putting over uh, 500 yards of total offense on the board. While OU's defense has been pretty significantly improved from last year, they've still been susceptible at times to the big play. So I, I think if UCF can hit a couple of big ones, then maybe they can uh, keep it close. Uh, so, uh, but I think you look at what Kansas was able to do to UCF uh, a, a week ago, and you, you start to wonder what a, an offense like Oklahoma's with not only Dylan Gabriel that we've talked about, an offensive line that's protecting him really well, and a, a pretty deep stable of receivers that uh, you know they should be able to uh, 
do some damage to that uh, UCF defense. So I'd probably bet on OU to cover. Not much of a betting person myself, though, because, uh, you know, things uh, tend to, to uh, be difficult to predict. But, uh, it, you know, certainly I think the way that OU is playing right now would give them a lot of confidence that they'd be able to cover that number. Yeah, when it comes to football, football things always happen. So you never know. They may have to kick a field goal to win. Who knows? But, you know, Chris, UCF, they played well in two of their three Big 12 games, but they find themselves 0-3. If they lose to Oklahoma, it's an 0-4 start, the biggest disaster they probably could have, you know, pictured in their minds before joining the league. So why don't you give UCF some fans hope? Why do you think that maybe there's a chance they could pull out a win or, or maybe, you know, squeak this one out? Well, I think part of it is that John Rice Plumley should be healthier. Uh, Gus Malzahn spoke earlier today and said that he's closer to 100%, which, you know, depending on how skeptical you are of that, because he didn't look anywhere close against Kansas. He only lasted three drives. But, you know, the, the bye week certainly came at the right time for his knee to get a little bit more right and for him to feel more comfortable on it um, post the meniscus injury that he suffered against Boise State. So if he's able to run and be a bit more effective with his legs, I think that definitely gives them more of a more of a puncher's chance in this game. And like you mentioned, I mean, they've played pretty well for spurts. I mean, obviously the Kansas game, you can throw that one away. They were they were not good at all that day. But uh, but Baylor, they were up thirty five to seven and really cruising in that game. Kansas State, they played really well for about three quarters uh, on the road. Tough environment against the league champions. So that's kind of what you'd expect something similar to this in terms of, uh, you know, atmosphere and opponent uh, uh, quality in Oklahoma. Obviously, the athletes, I think, are going to be a a, a touch of a higher grade, obviously. Um, The other thing, too, is I think, you know, Oklahoma's offense is more predicated in throwing the football. You know, they're they're fourth in the country in passing offense, whereas they're 54th in rushing. And UCS big problem has been stopping the run. So this isn't a team that necessarily wants to live and die by just pounding it in between the tackles like Kansas State and Kansas have, where they've really exposed UCF uh, up front. Whereas they want, you know, Oklahoma is typically a team that wants to throw it a little bit more, and that plays into more of UCF strengths. But their secondary has actually been very highly graded this year. Corey Thornton and Brandon Adams, their two starters, have been uh, particularly standout players in the secondary and they'll know a lot about Gabriel. They went against him in practice just two seasons ago. So I think that there's going to be some familiarity. They'll know each other's tendencies and that should make for a pretty fascinating matchup. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to talk Ryan a little bit about that running game of Oklahoma because we do talk about the high powered passing game. And as Chris said, you know, they're almost 60th ranked for rushing. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about who their backs are? You know, here in the state of Florida, there's a there's a big Oklahoma contingent, but there's probably enough people that don't really know a lot about this team. So introduce us to some of those players that are going to be trying to run it down the throat of UCF. Yeah, I think that's been a, a big question mark for this team to this point this year is that they haven't really settled on a number one back. Marcus Major has looked like that at, at various points, but Hasn't been uh, extremely consistent. Javante Barnes is the guy that everybody thought would be the number one receiver after he had a solid freshman year, or number one running back, excuse me, after he had a solid freshman year a year ago running behind Eric Gray. But he had an offseason foot surgery, for an issue that was bothering him really all through last year, going back to high school. And he has not returned to being anywhere close to the player that they expected him to be. Gavin Sawchuk is a guy who's got a lot of speed, 
but is still uh, recovering from an injury that he suffered in preseason himself. And I, I think he's a guy who's going to get more and more carries as the season goes on, but to this point hasn't been able to get that consistent uh, production. And then uh, you've got to start with the top, go with Tawi Walker, who is a walk-on. Uh, not uh, many people expected him to do much of anything this year and be in that rotation, but he's really been their most consistent back. Averaging uh, four and a half yards a carry, had four touchdowns, and uh, really proven to have some power. He's not going to be a guy who's going to break out and uh, you know doesn't have the breakaway speed that some other guys has, but he's uh, certainly has a lot of power uh, there in his game. And then uh, also Dylan Gabriel being part of the run game as well has been a big uh, weapon for them. We saw that against Texas with the way that he was able to run the football in that game, had his first 100-plus yard career rushing game in that one. And they've tried to use him a little bit more in that running game. And I think that that's going to be something that they're going to need to do consistently to uh, keep that as a threat to uh, spread defenses around more and give them a little bit more to think about. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, if they get up early, they're going to be using that running game. So UCF is going to have to look out for that. So, you know, Chris, I wanted to get back to John Rice Plumley. You mentioned he's likely going to be starting there. So, you know, he was injured again against Boise State in the second game of the season. That was way back on September 9th. He missed several games. We never really fully understood the extent of that injury. And then, like you said, he played those three series and then he was pulled out against Kansas. Did they, uh, you know, further do tests on his knee or, or what are some of the updates that we're getting? Or was it just something where he was just a little sore and they were precautionary? What happened there? So the way it was described on the television broadcasts that happened was that he, you know, he was speaking with Mary Vandeheiden, who's, uh, you know, part of the um, training team and has worked specifically with him in, in the rehab process. And that he felt kind of like a snap, a crackle, and a pop almost of sorts. He thought he'd heard something much worse, but they thought maybe it was scar tissue. Um, and then he felt a little bit more comfortable uh, for the for those first few drives. And it was more or less scared him, I think, is the way he kind of described it. Um, so I think you know, overall it sounded like potentially a torn meniscus. I mean, it was definitely identified as a meniscus injury in the buildup to the Kansas game um, on, on, in his right knee. And it, it was an, an injury that he was able to uh, come back from perhaps quicker than expected. Now, whether he came back because he was fully healthy or whether they thought they really needed him to try to win that game and stem the tide, that's kind of open up interpretation. But overall, I think, you know, he'll be he should be in better position to start this game. He's already been named the starter uh, this this afternoon. Whether he finishes the game is the bigger question, because there's been a, a number of games in recent times. You date back to about the middle of last season. He exited the Cincinnati game with a concussion. He exited the Navy game with, in, on November 19th, the sore shoulder. He exited the USF game, the war on I-4. Uh, with a hamstring pull, he didn't start the two lane game because of that injury and came back in and tried to gut it out. Uh, but obviously his effectiveness was hampered because of it. And then, of course, you've got this season, the game against Boise State, where he leaves, you know, where we he gets injured on the last drive and then he leaves the game in Kansas. So, you know, the, the question about whether he starts the game seemingly been answered, but whether he finishes the game is the bigger question. And it will be the, considering the, or the rest of the season. 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's the next thing I'm going to talk about with Ryan is that Oklahoma defense, which will be chasing around Plumlee and the other UCF players. You know, before the season even started, their defense was probably the biggest question more so than the offense. But then against Texas, second play of the game, Gentry Williams picks off uh, QB Quinn Ewers. And, you know, this unit seems to be held in more esteem now, I would say. And Williams, he leads the team with three interceptions. And you've also got guys uh, like, you know, Ethan Downs, he leads the team with three and a half sacks. So tell us a little bit about what what this defense does best and where UCF might be looking to take advantage of some things. Yeah, I think with this defense, you've got to start with their front seven, especially linebacker Danny Stutzman, who uh, leads the Big 12 in tackles right now with 58. He's been fantastic for them. And he had a lot of tackles last year, but a lot of those tackles were made you know, five, six, seven yards downfield. This year, he's making those tackles at or near the line of scrimmage in a whole lot bigger quantities and really uh, fitting in to what Brent Venables likes to do defensively much more than they were a year ago. They've also got a lot more depth up front than they did last year where they were having guys uh, play, you know, 90, 95% of the snaps. Now uh, things are a whole lot more spread out, especially with that defensive line, adding guys like Rondell Bothroyd from Wake Forest, uh, Jacob Lacey from Notre Dame, Trace Ford from Oklahoma State. So these are guys with a lot of collegiate experience who uh, are, are new to this program and Brent Venable's defense that have really done a great job of elevating the level of play. Now their their secondary has shown some uh, cracks at times with, like I mentioned earlier, those those big plays, uh, especially with their cornerback depth taking a big hit. Now, they got a couple of those guys back that have been hurt uh, back in practice this week, guys like Kenai Walker and a couple of those other guys, but still that's going to be something to watch there. But they have been good at, at uh, forcing turnovers. You mentioned Gentry Williams there with the three interceptions. He's been fantastic for them, especially getting tested a whole lot more with Woody Washington uh, on the other side, not really getting a whole lot thrown his way. And then, uh, you know, I think one of the stars of this defense to this point has been Peyton Bowen, the five-star freshman who everybody expected a lot of this year. And he's really lived up to that, keeps getting better and better. Uh, 23 tackles there for him, four uh, uh, passes defended, a forced fumble. He's also blocked a couple of punts for them. So, uh, they've got some playmakers back there in their secondary, but I think that's the area where if UCF can take advantage of of one part of this defense, that's the one where they could, uh, you know, make some hay. Yeah, that should probably make people in the SEC worried that there's a five-star freshman who's this good already, and he's going to be a sophomore with a year under his belt next year when they move over. I'm a Florida Gator grad, so I know that uh, I'm not too thrilled to hear that, but I'm sure Oklahoma Sooners fans certainly are. Well, you know, talking about defense, uh, Chris, UCF's defense, the last three games, they have given up just a lot of points. I mean, 131 points between three games. Now, I know in that Baylor game, they were put in some bad situations, some short you know, yardage situations where, where their offense lost the ball, but 44 points to Kansas State, 36 to Baylor, and 51 to Kansas. So, you know, what are they going to try and do? What is Gus Malzahn preaching this week against this explosive Oklahoma offense? How do they attack this thing? 
Well, I think they just need to get bigger people on the field. That's one thing I have a feeling that they're going to be doing. They just have to find a way to, to, to get some push and to make some more plays in the backfield. I mean, you watch the Kansas tape back, and a lot of those running backs are seven, eight yards downfield before anyone gets a hand on them. That's just not going to cut it. Um, the linebackers, I think, other than Jason Johnson, have, have really struggled this year. Um, you know, Walter Yates, who's their other starter, missed the Kansas game, and obviously his presence – you know, would have been uh, welcome. I, th- I think the safeties have also had a tough time tackling. On the whole, pro football focus has the team down for 60 missed tackles, and that's averaging 10 a game. That's just not going to be good enough uh, when you're trying to slow down anybody, let alone, you know, offense is the caliber of, uh, the, of some of these teams in the Big 12. Um, you know, there's some there's some good in it. I mean, they, the defensive line has had um, moments, particularly the pass rushers. You know, Tremont Morris Brash is near the nation lead in sacks and tackles for loss. Malachi Lawrence has four sacks in six games coming off the bench. Uh, John Walker was named to the freshman All-American team, the defensive tackle. Uh, and he's played a, quite a number of reps with Ricky Barber missing with injury. So there's not all doom and gloom, but definitely the middle of the defense, I think, is re- where they're really getting hurt and where they're really getting exposed. So I think that they're going to try to make some changes and just, you know, they have to stop the run first. If if, if Dylan Gabriel goes out there and throws for 400 yards, so be it. But they're not going to let it. They're going to try not to let another team just run it right down their throat for four quarters. Yeah, makes sense for me. All right, guys. Well, this is the time of the podcast where I'm going to turn it over to the two of you because you guys are the ones who are going out. You see the teams play. You see them practice. You know them better than anybody else. So I can only ask so many questions off watching games and reading about them. So, Ryan, we're going to start with you. I want you to ask Chris uh, something you'd like to know about UCF, and then I'll turn the tables and have Chris ask you something about Oklahoma. So, Ryan, like I said, I'll start with you. What would you like to ask Chris? Yeah, Chris, I wanted to ask you about the Gus Malzahn and the way that he's evolved. A lot of people around here are familiar with him from early in his career when he was at Arkansas and obviously uh, then uh, making the move up to Tulsa uh, before, uh, uh, you know, bouncing around a little bit and finally winding up at Auburn. How have you seen him evolve and especially his offensive philosophy evolve uh, over his time in Orlando? Well, he's evolved in the sense that he's, you know, said publicly he's taking more of a CEO role uh, as a head coach. And, you know, and that's a lot to do with the roster management aspect of it. I think more than anything, um, you know, ensuring that guys, the, the recruiting is where it needs to be, ensuring the guys are staying, you know, wanting to stay on board. And, you know, it's more so that than just the X's and O's. I mean, we know, we know what kind of an offensive, you know, mind he, he is. I mean, it's, you know, he's one of the kind of the forefathers of this power read zone read type of, you know, spread offenses that you've seen across the country, you know, always <laughs> loves to call a trick play. I mean, perhaps to a detriment, perhaps to a fault, you know, you'll see reverses, flea flickers, you'll see something, you know, out of, you know, deep in the bag uh, by, by the time Saturday rolls around, I assure you, whether it's, you know, RJ Harvey, their running back, throwing a pass, he was re- recruit as a quarterback at Virginia or something along those lines. I mean, there's, there's always some sort of, uh, you know, tricks up his sleeve, but he's given the play calling duties over to Darren Hinshaw this year, the offensive coordinator. You can still see that their philosophies are aligned. They're still, you know, very similar in what they do and their approach. But, you know, that's, I think the biggest change for him is kind of adapting into the, 
com- what he calls the new age of college football. It's like a, one of his you know, gusism of sorts, uh, you know, adapting into his role and becoming more of a overseer of the infrastructure of the program in addition to just the X's and O's and the offensive game plan. A gusism. I like it. All right, Chris, uh, why don't you go ahead and ask Ryan something you'd like to know about Oklahoma? Well, they lost Andrell Anthony, their leading receiver uh, for the season against Texas. So I'm curious to know, like, who's next man up there? What what receivers should trouble uh, UCF secondary come Saturday? Yeah, I think you look at their group of receivers and they've been pretty deep. Obviously, Andrell Anthony leading in yardage. He's been there, especially early in games, deep play threat uh, that they've used a lot. So not having him will be a big loss for the good thing for Oklahoma is that Jaleel Farouk has played much more like a number one receiver over the last three games. He's been fantastic for them. I think he'll continue to see his role grow. And then a couple of guys who didn't play much last year as freshmen, Nick Anderson, who leads a team with six touchdown catches, and uh, Jaden Gibson have played uh, significant roles as well. So they've had a, a much deeper group. When you look at the offense, I think the wide receivers were the biggest question mark for this team entering the year, but they've really been probably their biggest strength to this point. Uh, But a guy that I think his role has a chance to really blossom now with Andrew Anthony out is uh, Brennan Thompson. Uh, He's only played in one game, is a Texas transfer, uh, made a a couple of catches um, a, a few weeks ago against Iowa State that I think he's got a chance because of his speed and that ability to get the ball downfield that we talked about with Dylan Gabriel to really fit in well with what they're doing offensively and really see his game grow. Another guy that haven't brought up yet, Drake Stoops, is sort of a, a, a steady-as-she-goes type of guy. He, uh, You know what you're going to get from him. You're going to get grittiness. You're going to get uh, the ability to catch the ball over the middle and, and make plays with him. He's their leader in reception. So I think it's going to be a much more balanced uh, attack with it for them without Andrew Anthony in the lineup. But uh, that'll be certain to be something to watch on Saturday as they play without him for the first time this year. Well, I hear that name Stoops in there. Of course, he's the son of Bob Stoops, the coaching legend. And if you stick around to the end of the podcast, you get to hear a quote that I will end with from Bob Stoops. So a little teaser there. But great questions from both of you guys and great information on answering them. I got one more question left for each of you, and I'll start with Ryan. And Ryan, let's say we get to the end of the season. And right now, Georgia's the lone unbeaten in the SEC. Washington is the lone unbeaten in the Pac-12. Oklahoma is the only unbeaten in the Big 12. And then in the Big Ten, this will all work itself out, but Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State are all unbeaten. And then in the ACC, you have FSU and North Carolina. And that, again, will get itself worked out. So let's just say it comes down to five teams, one from each conference, undefeated. Out of the teams I named, who do you think would be the one that gets left out of the big dance? You know, I think Oklahoma would be the one that would have the uh, the most difficult uh, route to get in because you look at their schedule and not having a marquee non-conference game and with the Big 12 uh, being at the level it is right now without uh, much in the way of ranked opponents for them to play, I think it'll be tough for them to make the argument unless they just go out and smoke everybody the rest of the way and then beat Texas fairly handily in the, the Big 12 title game and what would be a rematch and hope that Texas doesn't trip up uh, somewhere along the way. But you look at 
Washington's schedule, you know, they've got three games remaining against ranked opponents and then potentially a fourth, especially if it's Oregon that they would meet in the, in the title game. But with, uh, you know, USC, Utah, Oregon State on their schedule, a Washington State team that's been pretty solid uh, to this point until the last couple of weeks, uh, the Big Big Ten with those uh, those teams that you mentioned, uh, those teams are going to be tested. And then I think uh, Georgia, it's going to be hard to argue, make an argument for an unbeaten SEC team uh, to miss the the playoffs. So I really think in most years, OU's uh, non-conference schedule has been enough to lift them even when their conference schedule isn't nearly as good. But this is a rare year where I think that could be an issue. Now, Florida State, doesn't have a great schedule, but they have that win against LSU to start the year. They have uh, Duke uh, coming up uh, this uh, weekend in uh, a matchup and then obviously uh, would play the the ACC title game at the end of the year. So I I think OU just is going to have a difficult time if there's five, but I don't think five is going to happen. We always think, hey, this is the year it could happen, and then crazy stuff happens near the end of the season. I think that'll uh, be the case again this year, and it'll all work itself out. Yeah, and I don't want to put a hex on them, but when you mentioned Washington's schedule, they have coming up after two fairly easy games with Arizona State and Stanford. Then they play USC. They play Utah, who right now is ranked number 14. They play Oregon State, which is having a fantastic year. And then they close out with Washington State, their big rival. So they're going to have to do a lot to keep that undefeated streak. And, you know, hey, like I said, I'm a Florida grad. I can I can hope and dream that the Gators will upset Georgia in a couple of weeks. But I wouldn't put my own money on it. But, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be fun watching how all of this plays out. And, Chris, my last question for you is, you know, UCF knew the Big 12 was going to be tough. They were still chosen out of the four teams as the one that people thought would maybe do the best, but they, they've really taken some lumps. That Baylor game especially was the one where probably they still look back and, and have to shake their head. So looking ahead to next year, what are they going to be doing in the off season? I mean, is it trying to get just bigger human beings on their lines to stand up against teams like Oklahoma? Is it, you know, trying to get better skill players? And is Orlando a place where you think all of these people might come? So that's definitely part of it. I mean, they're going to have to get themselves more physically ready, whether that's by, you know, bringing in guys from the portal um, to, to kind of supplement what they have currently uh, remains to be seen. But you have to take into account they're also going to be starting to more regularly recruit at a Big 12 level, a Power 5 level. Right now, their recruiting class is in the top 30 in the country, and that would be a, a, a program record. Um, they have nine consensus four-star recruits which has never happened. I mean, they've struggled to get one or two in a given year, let alone more than a half dozen. So it's going to take some time to fill out the roster to where it needs to be. But, you know, Gus Malzahn has signed a new contract. Uh, The timing of which announcement was, you know, maybe not the best since it was right after the Baylor loss. But, um, you know, he's locked in. He, He thinks he can get this team where it needs to go. And I think the one message, you know, the one other takeaway is that no game's over in this conference. No game is is done until triple zeros. I mean, go back to just a couple nights ago where West Virginia took the lead with 12 seconds left and gave up a Hail Mary on the last play of scrimmage to lose to Houston. So that's the kind of, you know, thing that they need to really focus on because they were able to get away with 
not bringing their A game in the American Athletic Conference and still boat racing a team by three touchdowns. That just doesn't happen in the Big 12. If you don't, if you are not locked in every drive, and if you're not, you know, able to go the distance for four quarters, you're going to lose games in this league, and the lo- the losses are going to, uh, you know, pile up pretty quickly. So I still think the second half of the year for UCF actually shapes up okay um, after the Oklahoma game. They've got West Virginia at home. They've got Cincinnati on on the road, and Cincinnati's equally really struggled in, in to adapt. They've got Oklahoma at home. Uh, excuse me, Oklahoma State at home, which you know is a tough game, but a game I don't think they're completely outgunned in. Um, they've got Houston at home to end the season. Like you could squint there and see probably three or four wins, and I think bowl eligibility from the outset has really been an attainable goal for UCF. And if they can do that, I think the year should still be viewed as a, as a fairly successful one, even though, you know, some fans probably envisioned going in and being more competitive right out of the gate. Yep. Very true. And there is still quite a ways to go, even though we're a little bit more than halfway done, but it will get here quickly before I let you guys go. Ryan, is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't asked or that you haven't gotten in front of the audience? No, I think we're uh, we we've covered uh, pretty much all the bases. It'd be interesting to uh, see the first matchup between these programs in a conference battle, which is uh, you know something that uh, doesn't happen very often, especially these days that you get a conference game being the first time the two programs have ever faced off. So, will be a fun one on uh, Saturday uh, down here in Norman. Alrighty, and of course, you can find all of Ryan Aber's work at Oklahoman.com. And Ryan, where can people find you on social media if they just want to find all of your aggregated links? Yeah, they can follow me on, on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it these days, at R-Y-A-B-E-R, at R-Y-A-B-E-R. Alrighty, and Chris, is there anything else you want to get in front of the audience before we let you go? Well, we did mid-season grades for UCF. You can find that on uh, our website now. Some of them kinder than others, uh, but yeah, obviously I think that you know the the bye week was a good chance for uh, for the team to kind of reset and to kind of give a, a grand scheme view of what uh, the second half holds for UCF. Alrighty, and of course, all of Chris's work can be found at news-journalonline.com. And Chris, where can people find you on social media? It's at Chris Boyle DBNJ for Daytona Beach News Journal. Alrighty, fellas, it's been a great conversation. Ryan, best of luck to you, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Alrighty, and Chris, thank you as always, and I'm sure we'll be talking again real soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you having me on. And that will do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters, and to quote Sooners coaching legend Bob Stoops, football is all about repetition. The trick for a coach is to be innovative when you ask for it. I hope you can be repetitive by listening to this podcast each and every week. Thanks for joining me. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.